I have a friend from college days that I'll call Doug. Doug is not his real name. Uh, but when Doug graduated from Wheaton with the rest of us, uh, he went on to work at a Chicago firm. Uh, he rose through the ranks. He owns a vacation home in the Florida Keys. And he travels internationally with his family every year. And we see the pictures on Facebook and Instagram. Each one of uh, Doug's three children have worked a job during high school. Each one of his three children have gone off to college. Each one of his three children is now married, oh, heart attack, and living their own, quote, successful lives. By any measuring stick post-graduation, Doug's life is impressive. However, none of us like talking to Doug. None of us like hanging out with Doug. And it, it, it boils down to Doug's attitude, okay? It's simple, Max. You know, I tell young people all the time, let me tell you, Max, loving the same person, it's simple. Like, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in a marriage. It never seemed that simple to me, like, <laughs> right? And so there's this kind of aura or attitude he has where, you know, of course, I've lived a successful life and it's simple. You just do this, this, and this. Um, we're impressed with success but we connect and identify with struggle and failure. Successful people impress us, but people who struggle, those are people we wanna to talk to. Those are people that we wanna hang with. You can relate to those people. Um, when, try a couple of experiments this week. See how the impress thing goes. And these would be lies for most of us in this room. Tell, slip into conversation that you went to Harvard Watch people's faithful, facial expressions here in central Kentucky. You went where? Mention in casual conversation that this summer you were vacationing in Paris, France, and then went on to Istanbul and took the train to, right? And watch people's facial expressions, okay? Their facial expressions will tell you, whoa, impressive, okay? But when a coworker tells you about their adult child who's struggling with an addiction, or when a friend at school admits to you that they're failing a couple of classes and they don't think anybody likes them at school, you're drawn to those people. You want to talk to those people. You can relate to those people. As a pastor, I don't go to conferences that have 10,000 people in an auditorium where some megachurch pastor is going to tell me how I need to have a compelling vision and effective strategy and all that kind of stuff. And I could be successful just like them. No, I want to talk to the small church pastor who just told me about the family who left his country church because the cool church in town has a great band or a great youth program with all the popular kids. I can relate to that pastor. This to me is ironic because the American church, the American Protestant church in America from the 1950s to the 1990s insisted that you needed to dress up, you needed to have your stuff together, you needed to be married with children, and you needed to show up on Sunday mornings with a smile on your face. God is good all the time. <laughs> and you needed to have your stuff together. For the longest time, if you struggled with addiction, if you struggled in your marriage or your relationships, if you faced mental health issues, you avoided church altogether. Instead, you would go to AA meetings or divorce recovery groups because those people would accept you as you are where you are and care about you enough to support you making the change necessary to stay sober, 
have healthy relationships, manage your condition. And in another layer of irony, those groups would often meet, guess where? In church fellowship halls and church basements. Like the irony is just incredible to me. A key ingredient of Christian fellowship is vulnerability. A key ingredient of Christian fellowship is vulnerability. Vulnerability is the doorway, not just to new life, but to genuine, true friendship. Now, 1950s Protestant America isn't the only time that Christians have been tempted to pretend in order to look good in front of other Christians. This happens a lot, and we see a version of it play out in Acts chapter 5, which is where I'm going to be today. I'm going to read these 11 verses, and then we're going to walk through them together. Acts chapter 5, verse 1 and following. There was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit. And you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't just lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they'll carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Do you think people were honest for a while after that? <laughs> Do you think people were honest for a while after that? Yeah. So vulnerability is the doorway to true friendship. So in Acts chapter 5, wealthy members of the church are liquidating assets and giving the money to the church leaders who then distribute the money to people in need. The equivalent for us today would be, let's say there's a 62-year-old wealthy businessman or businesswoman. They come to the elders of generations and they say, look, I've had this investment portfolio mature. I have $250,000. I can't, I don't need it. It's going to mess up my taxes here make sure that some of the people at church have what they need, right? That's the equivalent of what would happen. So these wealthy people are generous. They're giving away 100% of the return on their investments, okay? But then they're caught in a lie. Ananias lies about what he's giving to the church. So he gives, let's say, $35,000 on a $100,000 return. And he says to the church, oh yeah, it's everything I got. So he's, he's, he's keeping some of it back. And the church leaders somehow through the Holy Spirit or just discernment or facial expressions, we don't know what, 
Peter says, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? By the way, gang, this kind of stuff happens still today. If you think this is just weird stuff from the first century in Acts, I was a very young pastor at Church of the Savior, and I had a young couple, or not young couple, I had an older couple at the time. They, they came in and sat down and talked to me because they were having marriage trouble. And there was just this sense that I had that she was a UK professor at the time, and there's just this sense I had that she was having a relationship with one of her graduate students. So after we met, I pulled her aside in the hallway and I just said, look, this graduate student, like you're, you're having a relationship with him, aren't you? Oh, no, 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 no. Three days later, four days later, he catches them in the act and goes after her with a gun. The police got involved, an arrest was made, like you can't make this stuff up. Was I some kind of prophet? No. <laughs> God just does this kind of stuff. It happens, okay? And when this stuff happens, it's an opportunity to repent. Repenting is acknowledging truth and then turning from what's bad. <laughs> it's this twofold thing. So in that moment in the hallway, when I confronted this woman, she had an opportunity to fess up, didn't she? She didn't. <laughs> Almost cost her her life. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, Ananias falls dead right there on the spot. Swift judgment happens. And then uh, in the next few verses, the wife comes in and she also falls dead right on the spot. This is unusual for the Bible. In the Bible, the history that we have recorded, usually when God pronounces judgment on somebody or on a group of people, it's a long, 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 long forever period of time before judgment or justice ever happens. And that window is a window for the person or the people group to repent, to repent and to acknowledge, to turn from what's bad and to, through repentance, acknowledge what's true about their disobedience. So this is unusual. Usually there's a time to repent, a time to consider, a time to change. This is different because the church now is the temple of the Holy Spirit, just like our individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and the church is holy. And this is a marker in the early church that God is laying out, and he's saying, look, no lying, no posing, no pretending. Don't y'all be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no lying, no posing, no pretending. Don't y'all be doing that. Apparently, God has a beef with people who pretend, who people who pose, people who give lip service. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus has some criticisms to levy against a group of people called the Pharisees. And this is what he says to them. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they preach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands, and they never lift a finger to, the, uh, to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels, and they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace to be called rabbi. 
So Jesus says, believe, listen to their teaching, but don't do what they do. The Pharisees were acknowledged by most people in the first century as the group of people that were actually doing it right. They were taking God seriously. They were living out their faith. They were obeying all the commands as far as every, anybody could tell. Uh, and theologians who analyze Jesus' theology tell us that Jesus' theology most closely aligns with the theology of, guess who? The Pharisees of all people. Jesus' theology. They, uh, Pharisees enjoyed a kind of brotherhood. They would take a pledge in front of three witnesses uh, where they would pledge to spend the rest of their life observing every jot and tittle of the law, every detail of the law. Jesus didn't have a problem with their teaching. He had a problem with how they were living it out. And there's a word used here, hypocrite. It's the Greek word used for a theatrical actor, okay? Do what they tell you, but don't be like them. So 2,000 years later, does anyone ever want to be a Pharisee? Do you want to be accused of being a Pharisee? No, they've gotten a bad rap for this very reason, for this very reason. Appropriate vulnerability is something that we see in Jesus' own life. And I want to return back to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And I want you to hear these verses in light of this uh, these verses that have to do with not posing, not pretending, not faking, okay? Jesus says to his friends in the upper room, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you must remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment, love each other. In the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to, lay one down, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask using my name. This is my commandment. Love each other. Unlike a master-servant relationship, Jesus has made everything known to his disciples. He has fully disclosed himself. Jesus has been honest and vulnerable. The disciples know the real Jesus. The four gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's Jesus. <laughs> Want to know what Jesus did and said? Want to know how Jesus felt? Want to know how Jesus rolled? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John spell it out. There's not going to be a tell-all in the resurrected life where, well, let me tell you how Jesus was really like. <laughs> it's not going to happen. We can see what Jesus is really like because he was appropriately vulnerable with his friends. We get the real Jesus. This vulnerability is expressed in a command in James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your sins to who? Wait a minute. Let's read that again. That can't be right. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. The earnest prayers of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. 
a tremendous thing happens when we confess sin to one another. We find forgiveness and we find healing, right? Things happen in that. Um, generations as a church has long valued what we call authenticity. It's the thing on the board that says, don't fake it, okay? Our small congregation over the years has included budding atheists, people struggling with addiction, people struggling with their faith. Uh, our congregation has had lots of very imperfect people over the years. But God's desire for us is not that we would remain where we are, but that by God's grace, we would think and live more and more like Jesus. It's a work that God does in us and within the context of a church family. Vulnerability is a doorway to friendship, true friendship, and vulnerability is a doorway to new life. And so I want to unpack that in a minute. But before I do, I want to ask a couple of questions. Have you told someone in your life everything? Is there someone in your life who knows everything there is to know about you or everything they need or should know about you? And then secondly, this has to do more with personality and childhood and upbringing. Do you tend to let it all hang out? <laughs> or do you have a tendency to keep your cards close to your chest? Right? Where do you fall on the continuum? Do you tend to let it all hang out? Or do you tend to keep your cards close to the, your chest? In other words, do you run the risk of being open with the wrong people? Or do you run the risk of not being open at all with anybody? Okay? So how can you and I take this home? What does this look like? First of all, acknowledge that you're a sinner still in need of a savior. Um, we never outgrow our need for God's grace. We never outgrow it. Extended to us through Christian friendship. We have issues, sin patterns, sin habits, and we sometimes struggle in our faith and struggle to live like Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is giving the Pharisees a, a tongue wagging, so to speak, he says this about them. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites? For you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. What sorrow awaits you? So he's comparing Pharisees to whitewashed tombs. These tombs were beautiful alabaster kinds of things that as they caught the light would reflect the light, just beautiful. But inside, decaying flesh, <laughs> decaying human remains, okay? God won't tolerate faking it, posing, pretending, hiding, because it, covering up sin and struggle does not lead to repentance and transformation. It just doesn't. Okay, so acknowledge that you're a sinner. The second thing is, identify someone in your life that you can tell everything. Identify someone in your life that you can tell everything. And so I want to spell out a difference between sharing and vulnerability that I'm stealing from Justin Early's book, Made for People. Sharing is this statement, I'm struggling in my marriage. I, may, I might say that on a Sunday morning to someone. I might say that in the context of my small group. Our shouting woke up the kids last night and someone threw something. 
Now, all of a sudden, you understand what I mean by we're struggling <laughs> in my marriage, okay? One is sharing, one is vulnerability. Vulnerability is with one or two people or a handful of people with whom you can trust, that you can trust. Sharing is, I'm really stressed out at work. Vulnerability is, I'm taking pills to fall asleep because otherwise I can't settle down. Sharing is, I'm struggling in my passion with my walk with God. Vulnerability is, ever since I listened to that podcast last month, I'm starting to think that this whole faith thing is just science fiction, and I'm thinking of walking away. Sharing is, my wife and I are going through a rough patch. Vulnerability is, I'm actually flirting with a colleague on a text chain, and we're talking about meeting up. <laughs> See the difference? Okay? Sharing and vulnerability. As Justin early cautions, the truth is scary, but also sacred. Share it wisely. Boundaries should exist. Okay? So here's what I mean by that. Vulnerability is for appropriate contexts and appropriate people. You probably know some people who share everything online. They say that they're being authentic or overly vulnerable, right? But having everything out there for everybody to see has a tendency to kind of drive some people away, doesn't it? Right? So I want to encourage you, again, if you're, on that, if you're on that continuum, that's okay. I just let it all hang out. I want to encourage you this morning to be more selective with whom you're telling certain things. Just be more selective. That's all I'm saying. And for those of you that are on this end of the continuum that never say anything to anybody, I'm begging you, pick someone, find someone that you can tell everything. Um, the third thing I want to draw out of this application is something you might not have realized, but I had a big aha moment for me this week. So I want to challenge you to be appropriately vulnerable with someone other than Max Vanderpool. What? What? That's crazy talk, okay? So on the one hand, you guys are fortunate or unfortunate enough that you have access to a pastor. 70% of American churchgoers in the United States right now belong to a church of 1,000 or more. You want to see a pastor, you're calling an administrative assistant. She's telling you that the pastor has time. Let's see, it's September 17th. He can see you the Tuesday morning, November 22nd, <laughs> okay? You're in a church where you have tremendous accessibility. That puts you in a minority of American churchgoers right now. Um, but I want to challenge you to be appropriately vulnerable with someone in addition to Max Vanderpool, and sometimes other than Max Vanderpool. And here's why I say that. On the one hand, it is a joy and a privilege to get a front row seat to life. The, the celebration, the wonder, the struggles, the pain, the loss, and it's a privilege that I take very seriously. I keep confidences. Jenny doesn't know anything. <laughs> I keep those confidences. But here, I had this realization. On the one hand, I can work very hard to be a good pastor to this congregation, but can I be a good friend to 50 people? Can I be a good friend to 75 people? Can I be a good friend to 125 people? Even Jesus, who could walk on water, did not have 50 close friends. <laughs> okay? Even Jesus, who could walk on water. So if there's something today in talking about vulnerability that caused you to think, ooh, I should reach out to Pastor Max and we should hit the trail this week. We should have coffee this week. That's great. I'll have coffee with you. We'll hit the trail. 
but know that I'm probably going to ask when we get together this question. Who else have you told this to? Who else could you tell this to? Okay? During my junior year of college, a very dear friend of mine came back from holiday break with a bombshell revelation. He always wore these button-up shirts, and he always had his sleeves rolled up to the elbows. But after Thanksgiving break, the sleeves were all the way down. And he pulls me aside one day, and he starts rolling up the sleeves, and I can see the long scars of where he had slashed his wrists. And out, come the out comes the story. Max, I've really been struggling with my faith. I'm not sure I believe this stuff anymore. I'm not sure I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And I took a bunch of pills from my parents' medicine cabinet, and I slit my wrists, and I sat in the bathroom and hoped that I would die, and sure enough, it didn't work. <laughs> and I feel like God is telling me I need to tell somebody, and so I wanted you to know that this is going on in my life. Well, I was, what, 19, 20 years old? I was like, oh, this is, you know, what do I do with this? And also, I want to point out it was 1988. We didn't talk about those kind of things in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> you just didn't say that kind of stuff. But we started meeting every week in a stairwell of the school's old chapel, and we would ask each other these questions. What has burdened you this week? Is there anything I need to know? And then secondly, have you left anything unsaid? Is there something you're withholding from me? And just those two questions over the course of a semester that became two semesters became not just a life-giving thing for him, but a life-giving thing for me. It was reciprocal. It went both ways. I grew in my faith because of that. I wish we had known of a third phrase back then. Uh, Justin early in his book adds a, a phrase that they weave into conversations where there's appropriate vulnerability, where they're asking, what has burdened you this week? Have you left anything unsaid? And when they're done talking, the one friend will always say to the other, and the other friend will say back to the person, I am with you, and Christ loves you unconditionally. I am with you, and Christ loves you unconditionally. To this day, I don't know if his wife that he later married ever knew that he struggled sophomore year. To this day, I don't know who knows that part of his story, but he's walking with the Lord. He didn't get derailed. All because he was willing at a moment in his life to be appropriately vulnerable. Vulnerability is a doorway to new life and to true friendship. And I want to encourage you today to be appropriately vulnerable.